name is Josh, and I have the honor of closing out our gathering, last gathering of the year. And um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because, um, yeah, we weren't expecting this, but we are here. And as we've just been ministering to the Lord and the Lord first and foremost, we're just reminded of um, why we do this whole thing, that it's not about necessarily even to gather people, but to gather around someone first and foremost, and that person is Jesus. And so, um, yeah, we're just so glad to be able to preach your word. I'm going to be actually preaching from Acts 22 today, so you guys can turn to there in the word. Um, but, you know, as we're at the end of the year, um, you know, just reflecting upon, man, what went down, and, you know, there's just so many things that went happen, right? There's, if you guys remember, even the uh, riot at the Capitol in the beginning of the year, uh, that seemed like even so long ago, but this was beginning of the year of 2021, all these new variants coming out, and, and all the crazy stuff that keep happening, you know, in our time, and I think if there's a way to describe um, our day and age right now, I would say that our day and age is so confusing, it's so contentious, and it's so chaotic everywhere, right? There's theological, scriptural, political, moral, sexual, directional confusion in society and in culture. And, and even in our personal lives, many of us are experiencing or have experienced the confusion the contention and, and the chaos internally as well because the past year and a half has just been a difficult season for all of us. As, as for many of us, our brokenness, our, our disappointments, our wounds, our failures, our struggles, our pain were revealed on a whole nother level. And then you name it, and there's someone, in, not in this room because there's not many people in this room tonight, but you name it and there's someone in your life that has experienced it in 2020 and 2021 relational issues, identity and purposes struggles, sicknesses, anxiety, depression, dreams being cut short. In the midst of all the confusion, the contention, and the chaos, we're asking, will my circumstances ever change? Is this it? Will me and my family ever recover from this? Is there hope? And how do I make sense of the chaos in my life? And I think because of this, what the world and so many of us are longing for is perspective. Perspective to bring clarity. Not just any perspective, but a higher and grander perspective that'll help us make sense of the chaos within us and around us. In our passage today, Apostle Paul, he gives a testimony of his life, but he doesn't give it from his own limited perspective, but he actually gives it from God's creative and redemptive perspective. And as a result, as he recounts the chaotic moment of his life, he's able to share his story, not with shame and confusion, but with hope and purpose. And my hope tonight is that as, as you know, you'll be able to view your own life story, especially this specific season that we are in with hope and purpose, because this chapter of your life matters through the eyes of a creative and redemptive God. Amen? And so turn with me to Acts chapter 22, and this is Apostle Paul speaking. And let me read it for us. I'm reading from the ESV. Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And this is Apostle Paul speaking. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, 
as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who were also there with who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that even though it's the end of the year and, and you know, we're just taking in all the festivity and all the busyness of the season, God, that we're able to take time on a Saturday to come into your presence and to be reminded of what this whole Advent season is about. For your glory, for your sacrifice, for you coming into the world to save us from ourselves, God. We thank you, we love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About a few years ago, a news company interviewed four couples um, that have been married at least 50 years together. And you can only imagine the things that they've had to endure and overcome all those 50 years. And the interviewer asked one of the couples, what is your secret on staying so long with each other after all these years? And the wife of the couple responded, we lived in a time when if something was broken, we would fix it rather than throw it away. We lived in a time where if something was broken, we would fix it and rather than throw it away. And I think that statement says a lot about the society and the culture that we live in right now. It actually captures our society where we always have the option to buy something new, something better, something more valuable. I mean, think about it. The only thing that's better than an iPhone 12 is iPhone 13, right? And on top of that, we know that once something gets broken in any way, the value and the worth of that very thing decreases right away. And because we're bombarded by this worldly perspective, we naturally project and translate this onto, on this perspective onto God's kingdom and our lives. That because we're broken, God must be on to the next, God must be on to the new, God must be on to the better. And this is why updating or changing our perspective is so important because how you see affects what you believe. And what you believe molds, shapes, and influences your experience of life. 
And your perspective, how you choose to see, ultimately determines your reality. This is why Apostle Paul says what? That we have to constantly renew our minds in Romans 12 to make sure that we're seeing all things from God's perspective. But because we're bombarded by this worldly perspective of brokenness onto God's kingdom, we project it, many of our lives live our lives thinking that our brokenness disqualifies us from God's kingdom and God's story. And so we hide, we run away from God, we don't believe in who God's calling us to be, and so we settle, we place ourselves on the bench of the sidelines rather than participating in the story of restoring the brokenness in the world. And a lot of times, many, many of us have probably wondered and asked, how can God use me with all my brokenness? Why would he use someone like me of all people in the world? But that's not God's or the kingdom's perspective on brokenness if you look at Paul's story. By Acts 22, Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey, and he's been traveling across Asia Minor preaching to the Gentiles. And he's preaching, he's evangelizing, he's church planting, all to advance the kingdom of God. And eventually, Apostle Paul, he makes a return to Jerusalem, and there he tells the elders of the church that great things are happening among the Gentiles, that people are giving up witchcraft, that people are turning away from their false gods. People are getting baptized, and they're receiving the good news well, and they're accepting Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Now, the elders, they're, here, they're hearing all this, and they're so glad that there's all this good news, but unfortunately, they don't have good news for Paul in return. And they tell him that there's actually a group of Jews that are so upset because they heard that Paul was teaching the Gentiles that they don't need to practice some religious, certain religious or uh, cultural circumstance, uh, practices like circumcision, which was heretical to them. And rumors were circulating that Paul was teaching heresy all throughout the land. And therefore, the, uh, uh, the elders wanted Paul to go to the temple and go through a seven-day purification ceremony to prove that these rumors were false to convince everyone that Paul actually observed the Jewish laws themselves. And so, and so Paul agrees, and he's going through the ceremony, and he's wrapping up on the seventh day, and he's wrapping up, as he's leaving the temple, the very Jews who believe Paul is teaching heresy, they see Paul coming out, and they start accusing him that, hey, this is the guy that's teaching everyone to, to forsake all of the practices in the Jewish laws, and immediately there's a riot that breaks out. People are grabbing stones, ready to stone him. There's a mob that's growing, and they're shouting, kill him and kill him, and they're ready to kill Paul. And eventually, the word gets to the Roman soldiers, and they come up, they break up the mob, they gather Paul, and they bring him into the fortress. And at that moment, Paul asks a Roman soldier for permission to speak to the mob, to speak to the crowd. And Paul speaks, and he talks about the beginning of his story. Let's read verses 1 through 5 again. Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard him addressing in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And we see that Paul, was a, he's a Jew. He's born in Tarsus. He actually grew up in Jerusalem. He grew up under the uh, Gamaliel, one of the best teachers of the law, that he was zealous just like everyone else, that he persecuted everyone who followed this new religion called the way. Now, when I read this part of Paul explaining his early days, I hesitate and I cringe. And I kind of get embarrassed for Paul. And I wish I could tell him, like, listen, Paul, we get what you did. We understand who you were before you met Jesus. But come on, man, you don't need to talk about that part of your story anymore. I mean, look at all that you've done and accomplished since then. Just, like, talk about the good parts of your story. You don't need to go back into your, uh, into your ugly past because, bro, I don't know if you noticed, it's pretty bad. And I don't know if you know, but people around you are getting uncomfortable hearing about how you persecuted people. 
But Paul doesn't hesitate to share that part of the story because Paul understands that it's his whole story that reveals God's whole grace. When you choose to see through God's creative and redemptive perspective, you understand that it's your whole story that reveals God's whole grace. Not just a part of your story, but all of your story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, think about it. What makes Paul's redemptive story of being used by God so beautiful and powerful? Was it that he was actually perfect and he was a good person? No, it was the fact that he was actually killing God's very own people, right? The beauty and the power of Paul's story is that Jesus' love and grace encountered Paul when in the deepest brokenness of who he was and what he was actually doing. Now, I love using Instagram, and um, you know, my youth group students, they make fun of me, and they're like, Pastor Josh, you love Instagram as just as much as my high school friends. You're just as basic as a white high school girl. Um, and you know, they just make fun of me all the time for that. But I love Instagram because I love how I can edit and filter pictures to make sure that they're perfect. Because when I post it, and it goes up on my personal page, I want it to show my life in a certain way. So by editing my, sto- or my photos and my pictures, I'm editing my life and my story. But how many of you guys know that God doesn't edit our stories, amen? God doesn't edit our stories. He's not like, whoa, that moment of his life, man, he was really all over the place. So you know what? Let's increase the, the, haze, you know, the haze setting on that photo to make sure that no one knows what the hell was going on during that part of his life. Or God's not like, man, let's crop that part of her story out. Let's only show the good part. And while we're at it, let's increase the saturation so it looks better than it actually was. Or he's not like, man, this season of their lives in 2020 and 2021, I can't even upload it and show everyone else just because of how much of a mess their lives are in this season. No, he doesn't do that, right? Because God doesn't edit our stories, but he redeems our story. God is in the business of redeeming stories. Think about Sarah. In Genesis 18, God comes to her and Abraham and says, by this time next year, even though you are 100 years old, you will have a son. And it says that Sarah is listening behind the tent. And it says in Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? And then there's this almost awkward scene in all the scripture where all of a sudden God asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And rather than just owning up to and saying, I'm sorry, Lord, verse 15, but Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh. And God said, no, you did laugh. And it's just this awkward scene. It's like, what the heck is going on, right? And I'm thinking, Sarah, are you dumb? Just like own up to it, right? You're talking to God of all people. Now, if her story ended there, she would be known forever as the one who laughed at God and his promises. But if you look at Hebrews 11, 11, the chapter known as a hall of faith, what are the last words of Sarah? It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She will forever be remembered, not as the one who was lacking in faith that she laughed at God, but as one who has so much faith that she considered God faithful to his promises. God doesn't edit our stories, but he redeems our stories. Think about David. David's life is glorious. It's full of highlights, but it's also so marred and stained by sin. Remember, David committed adultery and he and with another man's wife, and he got her pregnant in the process, and in order to cover up his sin, he actually murders that man, that husband, so he can get away with adultery. 
And you're wondering, how can something like that be in the Holy Scripture, in the Holy Word of God? Because when you see through God's creative and redemptive perspective, you understand that God doesn't edit our stories, but he redeems them. And in Acts 13, 12, the last words of David is not that he's a murderer, it's not that he's an adulterer, but that what? He's a man after God's own heart. Even in our passage for today, in verse 17, God tells Paul to leave Jerusalem and go share the gospel. And Paul argues back with God, saying, Lord, don't you remember my past? Everyone knows I imprisoned you. Everyone knows I beat those who believed in you. Everyone knows that I killed Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church. They'll be scared of me. What good is my witness? But how does God respond? God isn't ashamed about Paul's past. In fact, when Paul reminds God of his past, God reminds Paul about his future and who he's called to be and what he's called to do. And in verse 21, he says what? Go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Many of us have edited our stories thinking that God can't use those chapters of my life where I was ashamed, where I was broken, where I was wounded, where I was offended. But when we gain God's creative and redemptive perspective, you realize that your whole story matters. Not just a chapter of your story, but your whole story. Because he's the only one that can redeem the most darkest, most broken, and most painful season in our lives. Amen? Because only he can make a message out of the mess in our lives. Only he can birth purpose from the pain that we go through in our lives. Only he can see a testimony in the making of the test that we will go through. And only he can see that our sorrows for today will become our strengths for tomorrow. I don't have to edit my story, but I can fully own them like Apostle Paul because I know that God is redeeming and making all things work together for my good and his glory. Romans 8.28, right? Every chapter and every season. That no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm feeling, no matter my failure or mistake, there's hope because God is that creative and God is that redemptive. And it's only when we fully own our stories that God can release power through them. But do you know what the biggest influence is that prevents us from fully owning our story? It's shame. Right? Brene Brown defines shame as this. She says, shame constantly tells us you're not good enough and asks us, who do you think you are? Now, we all deal with shame to varying degrees in this room. And if I were to ask you to fill in the blank of you're not blank enough, we could all probably fill in the blank right away. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not lovable enough. I'm not motherly or fatherly enough. I'm not qualified enough. Shame robs us of the truth of who we are and that we are loved just as we are. Shame's message screams that we're broken, worthless, unlovable, forever tainted, useless, and defective. And so shame tells us that your stories are too humiliating to share. You're not worth knowing. Your story has no power. And the best thing that you can do for yourself and to those around you is to keep those broken parts of your life hidden from everyone else. Now for me, I remember in second grade, um, at this time I loved baseball and I would go hang out and play baseball with my apartment friends all the time after school. Um, but just like every other kid when you're growing up, um, you know, I was struck with chicken pox. And for chicken pox, you know, as you guys know, you have to quarantine. Quarantine is like a normal thing now, but back then I guess it was only when you had chicken pox. But, you know, you had to quarantine for two weeks. And, you know, at that time I was so sad because I was just like, man, 
I can't believe I'm missing school. I can't believe I'm missing pre- um, precious baseball moments with all my friends. And I was just so looking forward to the day when I would finally be able to go outside and just play with my friends and just have a normal life again. And that day finally came. And when that day finally came, I remember just playing outside all in the sun. This was back in April, okay? So it was like spring, nice weather. I remember just playing outside all day in the, in the sun and just having a good time. But soon as I walked back into my house, I remember because my mom was making dinner, and she sees me, and she stops whatever she's doing, and she freaks out. And she's like, what is going on? And she's pointing to my skin, my face, all over, the, and all over you know, any part that was exposed. And I didn't even notice at the time, too. But when I looked down at my skin, all of a sudden, I saw these blisters just everywhere, like everywhere. And I didn't even notice until I looked at the mirror, but everywhere on my face, my lips, my ears, my arms, every part was just broken out in blisters. And, you know, they were freaking, my mom was freaking out. And she was like, this doesn't make sense. It can't be chickenpox because, you know, once you get it, you're not supposed to get it back. So we go to a dermatologist, and they take a biopsy in my skin. And of all things, um, the doctors found out that I'm allergic to the sun of all things. So when I'm out in the sun for a long time, I get these blisters, and, you know, they're really, really itchy. And so I would scratch them. They usually get infected. and I usually have to go through fevers, and you know it just leaves a scab, and it's just this whole thing, you know, this whole mess. And um, the worst part about growing up with this skin condition, though, was the way it made me look and how people reacted to it, especially other kids at school. I have a picture for you guys to see. Um, as you can see, it's it's not the most pleasant thing to see, and just you can imagine that all over my face and all over my, um, yeah, my arms and my ears just growing up and. You know, growing up with this condition caused some of the most painful and and loneliest moments of my life. I I would get called names like pepperoni face because these scabs would call over my face during school. People would say, ew, or yuck, in reaction to seeing me wherever I went. And if they didn't say anything at all, you can just tell from people's eyes what they're thinking. That you're disgusting. You're a freak. You're a disease. And I couldn't make eye contact with people because I was so scared of what people's eyes would communicate. To to this day, I still have a hard time making eye contact with people. I always covered my arms and my face because I I didn't want to draw attention to myself. And I just couldn't connect with with people because I was so scared of rejection. You know, growing up as a kid, I internalized all those experiences and bought into the lies of shame, believing that, man, I'm not good enough. No one will love me. No one will accept me. God doesn't even love me because if he did, he wouldn't have given me the skin condition. And so the skin condition left me broken physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. And this is how I sought love and connection through pornography because I thought, man, the only way that I'm going to feel accepted and feel intimate is through this thing, fake thing, you know, through pornography. I, I couldn't make friends because I was so scared that people would abandon me once they saw my skin condition. So I purposely avoided relationships, believing that I was protecting myself from potential of rejection and abandonment. And so I, I would hide and tell myself that I'm not worth being seen by others. I had a horrible relationship with my mom growing up. You know, for her, she believed that she was doing her best as a mom to protect me by not allowing me to participate in gym and other sports programs and, and playing baseball outside. And before, but for me, I wanted to prove to everyone that I wasn't going to let the skin condition hold me back. 
And so we would fight and argue, me feeling angry that I couldn't do what other kids were doing, her feeling misunderstood and angry that I couldn't understand her heart as a mother, and both of us just experienced pain of feeling misunderstood for years after years. And with God, I felt like I was an orphan, that God doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. And so I have to work hard to earn his love. And maybe if I'm just good enough as a Christian, then maybe he'll heal me if he's in a good mood. And so this was my brokenness growing up where so many chapters and seasons of my life where I was scared, I was angry, I felt insecure, I felt rejected, I was fearful of man, ashamed of who I was. And I grew up as an orphan believing that God didn't love me because I must not be good enough. And there's no way that he could ever use me and that he could ever choose me. But in verse 14, I love how the first word after Paul encounters Jesus on the way to Damascus and after he regains his sight is what? God has chosen you. God has chosen you. I mean, can you imagine the shame that Paul is wrestling with after he encounters Jesus? That he's been actually in the wrong the entire time, and now he has to actually deal with the brokenness of his past. And he's probably hearing the voice of shame shouting, who do you think you are? But God breaks the power of shame from the beginning before he sends Paul off to assignment and calling in his life. And he tells Paul that what? You are chosen, Paul. I think this is a word for every single one of us, that if we're going to pursue our God-sized vision and our God-sized dreams and callings from God, then we have to do it from a place of chosenness rather than a place from shame. And the voice of God has to be louder than the voice of shame where we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we're loved, that we're accepted, and we're chosen just as we are. Because the truth is this, if, if, you, if God can choose Paul, God can choose anyone, amen? If God can choose Paul, God can choose anyone because God isn't looking for perfect people, but God is looking for real people. God isn't looking for people with perfect lives, but he's looking for broken lives surrendered to him. I'm going to invite um, just Janet up. She can just play in the background. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says this, His grace is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. How often do we want to cover up and eliminate our weaknesses, our failures, and our mistake? But what do we read? What do we read? That Jesus actually wants to display his power through them. And when God looked at Paul, he didn't see someone who was perfect, but a broken vessel that he can fill so that his power may be fully on display. Your brokenness doesn't disqualify you, but it's the very thing that qualifies you so that you can be chosen and used by God. Amen. It's the very thing that qualifies you. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking in the city and they come across a blind man. And when they see the blind man, the disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, back in Jesus' day and in that culture, people believed that someone became blind because either that person sinned or his or her parents sinned. And God was cursing them with sickness as a result for their sin. And so they had this cause and effect theology that this happened because of that. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, Jesus, why did this happen? And Jesus responds back to them and says, no, no, no. You're asking the wrong question. The question isn't why or who caused this to happen, but the question you should be asking in this very moment is what now? 
what can God do with this now? How can God redeem this? What can God do with blindness? What can God do with your past? What can God do with your mess? What can God do with your disappointments? What can God do with your best days and your worst days? What can God do with the year like 2020 and 2021? And so Jesus spits into the dirt and he makes mud and he rubs it across the blind man's eye. And he says, this happened so that the power of God can be displayed through this life for this very moment. Some of us here tonight, you might be asking, why is this chapter being written in my life right now? Why am I in this season where I can't see? Why did we go through all that we went through the past two years? And I want to encourage us with this, that this chapter is being written so that the very power of God can be displayed in and through our lives. Amen? Because there will come a day, one year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, when you look back at this very season of your life and you and others in your life will see the creative process of God, the creative redemption of God in your life. How you were once blind, but now you can see. How you were once deaf, but now you can hear. How once you struggle with anxiety and depression, but now you are finally set free. And the most broken, painful, disappointing chapters of our lives where we couldn't see will become that much more beautiful in the light of God's redemptive work. I don't know why God gave me a skin condition of being allergic to the sun of all things. I don't know why he allows this to happen in my life and for for me to suffer what I went through. I remember crying every night as a kid, God, if you just love me, just heal me. God, if you just love me, just heal me. And I kept asking, why, God? Why is this happening? Why? Why? Why did you give me this? But all I know is that God is Redeemer. And he's the most creative being that can use weakness for his glory. And so my journey over the years is learning to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Trusting in Him when I know I'm still not healed. And instead of asking why, I'm changing my perspective to ask God how. Because if my whole story matters, if my whole story reveals God's whole grace, if God isn't going to edit my skin condition, but He's going to redeem it, then there too will come a day when this will be redeemed. You know, even right now, I get glimpses of it. You know, some people ask me, well, how did you get into ministry? I got into ministry because I was part of this Christian uh, club in in college called KCF, and I was in charge of um, evangelism outreach or whatever at Rutgers University. And I didn't know what to do, but all I knew was that there was a, you know, a sizable homeless population in New Brunswick. And so I really felt called to, hey, let's just do this. And I remember going out one day, and I was studying pharmacy at the time, and I was really struggling with my calling. And I remember we went out the very first day in faith, and at this bus stop, there's this homeless man. His name is Ivy, and we got to meet him, and we got to talk to him. We got to hear his story, got to pray for him. And it was just, it was just a really divine moment for me. And I remember after I prayed for him, we, I walked away, and I just remember God speaking to me so clear at the moment. It's like, this is what you're born to do. This is what you're made for. And that's how I got into ministry, just getting that confirmation, that call at the moment. But the only reason why I even had a heart or an idea for homeless ministry was because whenever I drove by and I saw homeless people be ignored, there's something in my heart where it resonated, where it's like, I know how that feels. 
I know what that's like. And if I didn't experience that for myself, I would have never gotten to that moment and I would not be doing what I am doing today in ministry. And I know that that's just the beginning of God's creative redemptive process being revealed and I know there's more. And until that day comes, I'm going to be rooted in His goodness and His presence in my life. Because I refuse to let my story be a wounded boy who constantly strives for the love of the Father. But I want to be remembered as a weak, imperfect, and foolish, broken, but beloved son who believed and trusted that God loved him and chose him despite his weaknesses and his brokenness. And that's the story that I want to own. That's the perspective that I choose to have. That's how I choose to see my life, through the perspective of God's redemption. You know, in Acts 22, this is actually my favorite part of Paul's story because it's actually a full circle moment. In order to truly see the beauty of Acts 22, we actually have to go back to Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, he's standing before a crowd in Jerusalem facing false accusations. And he's giving a defense. He's giving a testimony of Jesus. So here's Stephen facing the last moments of his life. And we read later in the chapter that Jesus is standing in heaven giving approval of Stephen's life. And Apostle Paul, who was then known as Saul, is actually standing right there in that moment too, giving approval of Stephen's death. And Paul has no idea that he's about to become the next leader of this movement called Christianity. And Stephen has no idea that the man standing right above him, notorious for killing people, that he will become the next leader as well. And Stephen starts off his last words with this. He says, brothers and fathers. Now, 15 chapters later in Acts 22, we find Paul in the same city, same place, same setting, facing the, salt, facing the same accusation. And I'm sure in this moment, Paul is thinking back to Acts 7 because Stephen's death was such a defining moment for Paul because shortly after that, Paul encounters Jesus and his life is forever changed. And so I'm sure Paul carried that burden and that moment with him over these years. So here in Acts 22, Paul is thinking back to that definitive moment. And how does he begin his testimony? He says it the same way Stephen starts off his brothers and fathers. And he shares his life through the perspective of God's redemption to say, brothers and fathers, God has a beautiful way of redeeming stories, doesn't he? Isn't he so redemptive in bringing life around full circle? That here I was on the other side persecuting those giving their lives to Jesus, but now here I stand willing to lay down my own life for the one who gave me his. And in the same way, there will come a day when God is going to bring us full circle with the most broken parts of our lives, the most broken chapters of our lives. And when we get there and we look back with the creative and redemptive perspective of God, we'll see how God made all things work together for our good and for his glory. Amen. We're wrapping up 2021. And I don't know what 2021 was like for you. I know 2021 for me, it's, it's been a mess. My, our team knows, but it's just been a messy season for me. And there's a lot of doubts and there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of shame. I think even in the world today, that's what the world is going through. Will we ever recover from this? 
But I just want to believe and encourage us through the life of Paul's story and how God worked in and through his life. That 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when we look back at 20 and 2021, that we'll see that God was in the process of writing the most beautiful story in our lives for the church, for this region, for the world. And that the greatest revival is on its way. If this is the most broken season, the most broken years that the world has recently gone through, then we want to believe that the greatest revival is on the way because God is a redeemer. Amen. So at this time, I just want everyone to stand. And we're just going to close out this moment. I feel like for some of us in this room, it doesn't even have to be 2020 or 2021, but maybe there's other broken, dark chapters of your life that you've never fully surrendered to God. And you kept those parts hidden thinking, God can't use those things. But I just want to encourage you that if God can use someone like Paul, then he can use anyone. And I feel like there's just a grace in this moment for us to bring this past year or those broken, dark chapters before the Lord. And just allow him to just speak into those moments. God, I just pray right now that you would show us how you're going to redeem those moments. God, give us your eyes. Give us your perspective. God, reveal how your grace is is perfecting those weak and those broken moments of our lives. God, we surrender those things to you. God, we believe in this moment that your grace is perfect in our weakness. God, we believe that you're the artist. We believe that you are the the potter. We believe that you are the story writer. And you're not finished with us yet. You're not finished with us yet. Can we just make that our prayer over those parts of our lives over this past year? I think the most powerful, one of the most powerful words in Scripture is yet, right? That breakthrough hasn't happened yet. That revival hasn't happened yet. That my family, my friends that don't know Jesus, they haven't accepted Jesus yet. And I want to believe that for us, that he's not finished with our stories yet. Amen? He's not finished with our stories yet. And so let's just pray and lift up to the Lord and just offer up our our lives to him. God, we thank you so much that, God, that this is the moment, God, that, God, we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be broken. We don't have to hide. But, Lord, in this very moment, we can come before you in honesty and in our weakness and in our broken chapters and say, God, you're not finished with us yet. God, you are the artist and we are the canvas. God, you are the potter and we are the clay. God, we are the story that's being written out by your penmanship. And so, God, we want to believe that the greatest redemption, the greatest revival is on its way, Lord. We want to believe that you're working and making all things new. God, you're making all things work together for our good and for your glory. You're not finished with us yet, God. You're not finished with the churches yet in this region, God. You're not finished with this region yet, God. We want to believe that there's more. We want to intercede that there's more, Lord.